This episode of the WPAOG podcast features a conversation with James Keegan, class of 1955, a private investor and former chairman of the board of Adams Keegan. He is best known as a co-founder of Morgan Keegan & Company, now Raymond James, one of the country's largest investment firms, where he served as president and COO until retirement in 1985. He has served as chairman of the board of directors of the National Association of Securities Dealers, chairman of the board of directors of NASDAQ, Inc., and as a director of AutoZone, Inc. from 1991 through 2004. In this episode, Jim tells us how his experiences at West Point and in the Air Force helped prepare him for the business world. He provides his take on what is required to start a business and navigate the trials and tribulations to success. Jim also explains while being disciplined and resilient are paramount to being a great entrepreneur. Now, please enjoy this interview with James Keegan, a private investor and chairman of the board of Adams Keegan. Hi, everyone. My name is Ty Reedy, class of 2005, and I'm joined by Mr. Jim Keegan, class of 1955. Not only do I have the honor of speaking with Jim today, but I also have the privilege of working for one of his companies he co-founded over 35 years ago, Adams Keegan, which is an HR payroll and benefits firm. We are recording this from the Adams Keegan corporate office in Memphis, Tennessee. Jim, I'm so excited to do this podcast with you, firstly, because you have an incredible story through your time at the academy, playing football during a challenging time for the academy and the team, your time in the Air Force, and obviously your entrepreneurial journey since you left active duty back in the 60s. So I think listeners are in for a real treat. And on that note, I'm going to do as little talking as possible and just ask some probing questions as we go along. So Jim, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. We're just going to start at the beginning and we're going to kind of lead our audience to where we are today and some of the lessons you've learned through your time at the academy and the military and through business. Obviously, this is geared and oriented toward entrepreneurs and they want to hear, you know, your story and some advice you might have. And I think we'll just tell that story as we go through your timeline. So maybe a good place to start is kind of where you grew up and how you kind of came to wanting and being interested in the academy. Well, it it started a long time ago, as you can tell by looking at me, but I grew up as an army brat. I grew up in the 1930s and in the early 40s. And my father originally started out as a cavalry person and uh, transferred to the Army Air Corps. And uh, I grew up in the San Francisco area and there was days when the Army worked five and a half days a week. So always on Saturday in California, my dad would take me to the swimming pool and he'd go to work. But I heard about West Point growing up. And when my dad went overseas in 1941, he was sent to the Philippine Islands and uh, settled in the in the the area of Mindanao, and when they they were forced to surrender in 1942, May of 42, I think it was, that was the last we heard from him until we were notified in September of 55 that he had died of malnutrition and uh, exposure. I was admitted to the United States Military Academy as the son of a deceased veteran. It was a competitive examination. I, I guess looking back on it, I was lucky to get in. I don't think I could get in the military academy today. I think uh, maybe kind of tell us your 
self-pursuit of the academy, right? A lot of people have people that kind of mentor them through the process and kind of tell us about the process of well, it, through high school. Well, it was a matter of I was going to go to the military academy or college is a, a doubtful procedure for me. So I had to study a little bit and he would spend some time in the library, first of all, learning how to procure in a, in my, an appointment in the year that I entered I think there were two vacancies and uh, some 50-odd of us that were sons of deceased veterans were competing with each other. You had to work, first of all, in the library with some old exams you could find. And although they weren't typical of the exam you would take, they were all written exams. And you would see some crazy answers from some of the kids back in those days. I think just discipline and more than anything else, studying hard made it possible. I was lucky enough to receive one of the appointments. I went to the academy uh, initially for more than anything else to gain an education, and it came a way of life for me. I think that uh, I was lucky enough to play a little bit of football there. I wasn't any good, but I did was able to do that, and I had the, the joy, if you will, to remember that Coach Blake's staff at the time I was there included... Uh, Vince Lombardi is the offensive coach, and Paul Dietzel is the defensive coach. Both hard-driving and uh, demanding people. Can you talk a little bit about the academy at that time, maybe, you know, as a plea, what was it like, and the drills? And the, you mentioned something to me earlier when we were preparing about the troglites and the froglites. There are trogs and there are frogs, and most people think of the trog as a troglite. Uh, I guess a, a nuisance old person that that gets in the way all the time. But the truth of the matter is the Trogs are two regiment old grads and the Frogs are four regiment old grads. And I was a Trogolite. The Trogs, I, I guess, more than anything else, tend to be a little more set in their ways than most other uh, groups. But we, we nonetheless have only the best regards for the Academy. Can you uh, maybe talk about the typical day back then? You were telling me about classes on Saturdays and Saturdays. Well, we, we did have five and a half days worth of classes. We also had two parades a week, particularly in the summertime. In the wintertime, we just had bandbox reviews every Saturday. And they, they weren't the regimental parades, they were brigade parades. When I was a plebe, we marched on the plane in battalion mass, if you can imagine, which is we had six battalions at the time. And there'd be six masses of cadets uh, with roughly 600 and 500, four or 500 in each of the masses. And then uh, they made the movie West Point Story. And everyone's decided we needed to learn how to march squad drill, which is what they did back around 1900. And so we marched in squad drill for the rest of my three years there. Squad drill was an exciting thing because everyone goes several different ways before they end up going the same way. We had, besides the five days class, we had parades in the spring and fall, I guess, twice a week, Wednesday and Saturday, weather permitting. It was If the weather was there, you marched. And you'd hear plebes singing uh, the old song uh, about, please bring the rain on. Can you talk about your the military side and, and the education you received in four years? And I know you were telling me about some of the summer activities and, and then what got you interested in, in the branch that you ultimately... Okay, well, my, my father, as I say, was Air Corps, so I was inclined towards the Air Force, which had just been become a, a separate branch about the time we entered the academy. But we selected branches much like I guess you do now. 
the branch selection was a matter by class standing, and uh, there's so many slots in each branch. The only choices we had were combat choices. In the Army, it's infantry, artillery, armor, engineers, and signal corps, and plus the Air Force. And 25% of our class went to the Air Force, and 25% of the Naval Academy's class went to the Air Force in 1955. Um, and I, I chose to go to the Air Force because uh, I had experience about getting wet at work at Buckner and didn't like it. <laughs> so so you, you graduate and I graduate, talk about the Air Corps. I graduated and went immediately into pilot training at Mariana, Florida in primary. And we were the last class in the Air Force to train, primary train in the T-6, which was a World War II advanced trainer, but the old yellow perils, if you will, and went from there to Laredo Air Force Base and learned and turned my basic training in, in jets. Half of the class went to other stations and got their training in multi-engine aircraft. So you did that so, training and uh, you incurred a year and then you went to another well, specialty training. Well, our, our obligation in 1954 was much different than we have today. We had a two-year obligation at graduation, and um, we had an additional year for each year of advanced training, and in, in my case, it was pilot training. Uh, and they, it was really kind of lax, and uh, it was relatively easy to move on to something else. Uh, my personal experience, well, I enjoyed flying. I had a wonderful time. I was stationed at Langley Field at the, uh, on the fighter bomber squadron, and enjoyed that, was transferred in 1958 to uh, Hamilton Field in California. And my experience in California wasn't quite as good as it was in Virginia. I think that's all I should say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and then you started to get the itch to kind of look for something different. Well, and you found finance. You reach a date, time in your life, you're 25 years old. And you see the old guys who are 30, 35 years old, and you think, hmm, Jim, you can't do this all your life. And I didn't have a, at that time, I didn't have a sponsor as such to mentor me, if you will, and convince me I should stay where I was. And I'd taken some evening courses in finance at the University of California and at a, a local uh, junior college, Marine Junior College, and learned and got to know several people in the investment business. And I told them what I was doing. They gave me some interviews. And uh, as we pursued ideas, I settled on settling in Memphis, Tennessee in the investment business with a small local firm. And as over several years, as I progressed in the business, I noticed something strange about Memphis. It was a large city, 650,000 or more, one of the probably 20 largest cities in the country if you don't look at the metro area. And um, I just I noticed there's a, a lack there, if you will, a void. And I talked to anyone that listened to me, I'd have the conversation, what this town needs is. And one of the things it needed was a investment banking firm who could help Local firms go public if necessary, raise capital, as well as pursue other investment banking options. And I also had become a, a wholesaler trader, if you will, 
I traded the firm's capital and made markets. And I got to meet virtually every retailer in the city of Memphis and a good many outside of the city of Memphis. And my afternoons after the market closed was going around to to other firms and talking to the brokers there in order to sell my services so that they were going to buy a thousand shares of federal compress and warehouse, they'd come to me looking for it. And in the process, uh, as I say, I learned, I got to know virtually all the young brokers there and the ideas that people with some imagination. One of my friends was a fellow by name, Alan Morgan. His father was the chairman of the board of First National Bank in Memphis. And during this time, I was recruited away from my firm to a firm in Nashville called Equitable Securities. This was 1968-69, and at that time, Equitable was the second largest firm in the country in terms of capital. Merrill Lynch had $120 million of capital, and Equitable had 100. And Bache, I think, was 83 or something like that. It was the third largest firm. Market turned kind of sour at the end of the 60s. We had some big clearing problems. And Alan called one day and said, Keegan, let's start a firm. And I said, sounds like good to me. So I had to go out. And, so I visited with him over a weekend and decided if we could do it, how we could do it. And that's really the, the beginning of what was at that time Morgan Keegan. Can you talk about like maybe some of those discussions? What were you and Morgan talking about? What were the things that you needed to discuss to decide that this was this was a good idea? Well, we we saw the void. Right. We discussed the void and how we were going to fill it. But we needed, first of all, capital. In the investment business, particularly, capital was essential because I had, in my short time in the investment business, I had seen several firms otherwise look like strong and viable businesses go under because they lacked adequate capital to go through harder times of who you will or to meet regulatory challenges that to do certain products, they had to have a certain amount of capital and they couldn't double count their capital without going into a great deal of detail. That's what started. So that we talked about how we were going to keep our books. We decided we needed, and part of the smartest thing that we ever did but we hired, or we recruited a young CPA who just graduated from the University of Mississippi to be our CFO. And at that point, we were able to go out and start recruiting other people to join us in the business. So this is the, really the start of the beginning of your entrepreneurial life. This, this was life. the beginning of the, uh, my entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial life. Yeah. I begged, borrowed, and... I can't say stole, but I, <laughs> I certainly begged and borrowed $100,000, which in those days was a hell of a lot of money. It's still a lot of money, but it was a hell of a lot of money. And my partner, Alan, who came from a well-to-do family, he took a, a inheritance he had gotten from its grandmother, and he invested $300,000 in our business. And that's where we started the business by default. The biggest business and the biggest brokerage firm in Memphis in terms of capital, which is, I have to interject at this point, Memphis was strange. Cities like Nashville had equitable securities. J.C. Bradford and Company, a New York Stock Exchange member, Jackson, Mississippi, uh, had a New York, Leland Speed, I believe was the name of the firm. 
I had a New York Stock Exchange member firm down there at Little Rock, Arkansas, and these are all cities smaller than Memphis. Uh, Little Rock had Stevens and Company, which had 35 or $40 million in capital at the time, and they're just a little municipal bond shop. And the, the boy that we were looking for is a well-capitalized brokerage firm and uh, that could do a broad range of M&A and uh, brokerage services through our region. Right, so you saw, you saw the, the, the gap, right, in the industry. There was, there was a That's need right. within the industry. So what do you think from, from leading up to this point in your life, whether it's growing up as a brat or, or being a graduate of West Point, going through West Point, playing football, being in the, the Air Corps or the Air Force, all those experiences, what do you think that did for you to be able to have the confidence to make that, that leap, right? Because you had a secure job. It was a good paycheck, probably. You know, yeah, you're maybe comfortable, but this was a this was a step out for you. And what drove you that? What gave you the confidence to well, do that? It was the desire, first of all, be successful. I de- never thought of it about terms of being on my own, anything like that. I wanted to be successful. Mm-hmm. I wanted to. Uh, I'd be, I guess, exaggerating if I said uh, I wanted to be a service to someone. I didn't. I wanted to make a lot of money, mm-hmm. and that work. I guess, brought about the disciplines we learn as cadets, if you will, trustworthiness and integrity and, and uh, yeah, attention, some, attention to detail. And yeah, well, the detail yeah. and the passion, if you will. You've got to have passion for what you're doing. And as, as I mentioned, capital is awfully important. But beyond that, you have, have to have discipline to believe what you're doing. We, we had the discipline when we started to make a little money in the business to, and this was by design from the very first, to put at least 50% of our earnings back into the firm and not pay them out to the principals. And we were not overpaid by any stretch of the imagination during the the first 10, 15 years of our business. We did reach the point where we took the company public in 1982 and reached the point where our capital was at the same uh, level where some of the other regional firms across the country. The firm has been very successful. I left the firm in 1985. They were sold out about 2000. And uh, it was a fair size firm that time. I think its capital reached up about seven or eight hundred million dollars. If we could, let's focus in on the, the discipline piece, because I know you and I talked earlier, and obviously to get most, if, if all entrepreneur endeavors off the ground, you have to have capital. Absolutely. And, which you, which you and you have, have adequate capital to take you through the harder times when perhaps you're not making money or even losing money. And you have to have the capital to expand an office, to hire people. That selfishly, I've personally been against front end of money like a lot of firms do at this point. It's, it's common in the investment business. If you're a big producer and you move it to another firm, they have to pay you. Uh, it ranges from 100% of a year's production to some astronomical numbers. And we always felt like if we couldn't sell our prospects, if we will, on the future and the wonderful experience of working with neat guys like us, that we didn't want them. 
So, so maybe the discipline and integrity piece, because I know you talk, you and I talked about those two qualities, the discipline and integrity. So what, can you talk specifically about what you and your partners did at Morgan Keegan once you became profitable and you had a surplus coming in the door? What tactically, what you guys did to ensure the long-term success of the company? First of all, we spent the first year recruiting a core of people, other producers, um, a good securities analyst, a bond specialist, as well as others. And this was our core. And at the end of the year, we had a million dollars of capital. And it was the first year that we ever lost money. We lost a total of $10,000 that, that year. The following year, our profits, we paid, as I said, a fair but not outlandish salary. But the profits were split 50-50. The firm got 50% of the cap of the earnings. And the partners would split the balance plus a little bit to some outstanding employees that we had. And that was the way we ran this firm. And Alan ran this firm after the after I left till he sold it. The other things uh, we were talking about is is the ability to stay the course. You had to have capital in your business for to carry you through the good times as well as the bad times. So not only the financial resilience, right, to, exactly. to, to get that company through the, the ups and downs like you're talking about. When you talk about like maybe how your past and through the academy and through sport and all that built up your own personal resilience and how you continue to have that today. Well, it's a matter of teaching to your children to start with. But I'm currently, well, I have been until recently, associated with Bodoc, which is the holding company that owns Adams Keegan. Adams Keegan was a an investment that I made in 1987, a small investment, a very small investment, because a, a friend who had previously been with Morgan Keegan went on as his own as a uh, merger and acquisition specialist. And he had this small company that was in the PEO business that he wanted to raise a little money for. And so about eight of us, I think, raised about $100,000, $120,000 for Bob Adams to start Staffline, which was a PEO. And I think that I didn't know what they did then, I'll put it this way, and I had no idea, but I invested the money. And in five years, I would pay my money back, and I had a small interest in the company, for 5% of the company. And then, I guess some years after that, a few years, one of the principals of John who originally put the deal together had some financial problems. He needed to raise the money, and he owned a little over 30% of it. And uh, he uh, came to me, I want to know if I wanted to buy his interest. I conferred with the other stockholders. They didn't mind. And so I ended up owning something over 35% of the business when it was done. And I think I, I... started to learn a little bit about the company. Not long after that, we had uh, a bit of a strain, but we I went out and raised $2 million for the company to get it going and expand its operation. And after a couple tough years, we never really lost money, never really made money. But the principal that we had hired a guy out from Arthur Anderson uh, accounting firm, wasn't doing the job. So 
we fired him. I told the board I'd run the company for a year until we could find someone to take his place. My son and me, meantime, had been working as a salesman and was successful. And I brought him back to be our CFO. He, he was an MBA from the UNC in Chapel Hill. And we got, got the company going from there. After a year, we made Jay COO, and he's built the company since then. I've been on the board, but other people knew a whole lot more about the business than I did. I guess just in general, I know you've already touched on some things like integrity and discipline and resilience, but maybe maybe just touch back on your time at West Point and, okay. and how that's uh, really shaped you. Well, it comes back again. If I were 50 years younger and starting a business right now, the first thing I'd want to have is passion for the business and be adequately capitalized to start. And there you have the base you start from there, you go into the integrity problem that you want your your customers, your clients to feel the same way you do and to have the same experience you do and to want to do business with you. You have to have the perseverance to know that if someone's gonna say no and slam the door on your butt as you're walking out, you got to turn around and do it again the next door you come to. And you might even go back to the first door and and see if you can't get back in and let them rest for a while. You have to have the discipline it takes to not spend your capital and the resilience to uh, uh, get up off the floor every time you knock down because you'll be knocked down a hell of a lot. Uh, you got to ask a lot of questions uh, before you get an answer you're going to like. The other part I think would be extremely important in the business today is what is the long term? What's your desire? What do you want it to be? When you were in the military, you had a objective. We're going to take this hill. We're going to strike this target. You had a discipline, and that's what you told your people who work with you that you were going to do. And you're going to have to have that same sort of resilience and discipline and, and desire to be successful in any business you start. That has nothing to do with, is this a good business? I can't tell you whether this software company or the software idea is going to be successful, but I can tell you that if you have something that is of use to your your clients, that they have to have, they want to have, even if you have competition, then you can do it as well as they can. So, Jim, if you could tell us, just really reflecting back on your time at at the academy and through your time in the Air Force, what lessons did you learn and how did that that lead you to be a successful entrepreneur? Well, I, I think at the time of the academy it taught me d- discipline and a, a confidence in myself that I could learn another business. I spent six years working for a small local firm to learn the business, but I had enough curiosity to find out more than my small area. And as a matter of fact, I gravitated from one area to another area on purpose to learn more about the inner workings of of the firm. And then when I was recruited away to Equitable in Nashville, I learned even more, a hell of a lot more, because it's a lot bigger firm. The communication certainly is important. And challenging other people, that's basically what you learn at West Point. The leadership part of the game is one where you learn as a matter of fact, I've not known other institutions, including some of our sister military institutions that lead 
that, that teach leadership now or back in those days the way as as well as the military academy does. I think that anyone's success is is based on their background, and the more you learn before you go out and step on your own toes trying to start a business, obviously the better off you are. Reflecting back on our conversation, both during this conversation and, and prior to this, you went into the to the Air Force, but you weren't always flying the plane, right? You, no. So you were on the supply side, you're on the maintenance side. And then I think that agility and the ability to learn a totally different trade, I think, you know, you parlayed once you left the, the Air Force. Well, that's true. Right? I, I even had uh, six months as a club officer in a major in- institution, and I'd never seen a true balance sheet before those days or an income statement. But mm-hmm. uh, you do learn pretty quickly how what the assets are and where the expenses are and where the income is and which part of a business produces the best results for the, so, so far as your bottom line is concerned. And that, that was unquestionably a major learning factor in, in my business background. And I think as you press on, the more you learn, and the, the same thing I did when I went to Equitable Securities to a larger firm, I helped them through a very difficult time set up a, a clearing operation. And the other thing that helped a lot in the business, I was very much involved in the self-regulatory the self-regulatory end of the business through the NASD. And I served on the district committee for three years in New Orleans and then uh, had the pleasure of good experience of uh, serving on the board of governors of the National Association of Security Dealers. And then after that, I served on the board of directors of NASDAQ for four years and three years as chairman. I will say I'll, I'll blow my own horn. Uh, I think I was in developing NASDAQ, and it was in, in its infancy at that time. I was responsible for the showing of size, which doesn't mean much to a non-monetary person in the business. But prior to that time, the only thing that was shown on NASDAQ was the bid and the ask, and didn't show whether it's 100 shares or 100,000 shares. And in, while I was there, I was I helped develop the size presentation at that time. So I think the one, uh, one thing is why we, you, Adams Keegan, wanted to get involved with the West Point Entrepreneur Summit in the first place and what that means to you to maybe give back to the community and to the alumni and fellow old grads that are... Well, well for, for an old grad, and, and I am old, the idea of getting back and dealing with graduates, whether they're leaving the military after their obligation, like I did, uh, are setting out for a new life after retirement and starting their own business. I think if I can offer anything that helps them, makes it easier for them to do and understand what is involved, then I'd love to do it. That's part of my goal. It's kind of a little payback, if you will, because a great deal, pretty much everything I have that I don't say my wife gave me. Uh, <laughs> I, I give West Point credit for whatever successes I might have had, however small or however large uh, that goes along that line. I'm really looking forward to uh, being in the D.C. area because I'm looking forward to meeting. I understand there's quite a collection of, uh, of attendants. I'm meeting a bunch of old grads. I'll challenge some older than I am, see if they can get there. But I look forward to it and think this is something that is great, should be done on a regular basis by the AOG, because 
your life doesn't end at 42 years old and the 20 years retirement from uh, the Army. That's just beginning. And I had the, the good fortune to, to stay active in the business through my 70s and kind of partially inactive through my 80s. But I'm looking forward to the next 10 years if I can last that long. Wow. What an incredible life you had, Jim. Uh, I know there are many lessons you've shared that the listeners will be able to take with them. Uh, and I know I can speak on behalf of all old grads out there that we are extremely proud of how you've represented the Academy, both personally and professionally throughout your life. And we just thank you so much for taking the time to tell your story. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.